there's a reason that people are smashing down forests. It's not for fun and games, it's hard work. They want to create money to feed their families and potentially buy an iPhone 14, just like everyone else wants an iPhone 14. It's nothing, we can't tell them not to get that, but we can give them a model to get it without destroying the last pockets of biodiversity around the world. Hello friends, and welcome back to Undaunted with Robert Swan and NTT Data. We've heard from Robert Swan in two previous episodes, and he frequently mentioned his son, Barney, with great pride. Barney has his own fascinating tale. He spent his earliest years in London, but moved to rural Australia when he was seven. Today, at age 28, he's focused on regenerating an abused section of the Daintree rainforest where he grew up in Queensland. But he's taking a break, if you can call it that, to join his father on the undaunted South Pole 2023 expedition. Barney is here today to share his story. But Barney, I want to begin by asking what it was like to grow up with a father who spent so much of his time trekking to and through the far reaches of the world. Well, Dan, just to preface, thank you so much for being here and channeling this conversation. And a big thank you for NTT Data for hosting this podcast and giving us the opportunity to share and to engage on, on some really important subjects. And I think the story of Dad and I as a collective really did begun, begin as an early age. I was supporting him uh, before I could walk properly to conferences and seeing him growing up. He was always my dad. I never really viewed him as any, anything different, but step by step, growing year by year, I suddenly realized that his influence and his capacity was a bit different. And being raised in Australia in the jungle, it was somewhat of a challenge to integrate that because in Australia there's a tall poppy syndrome and each flower that's a little higher than the other flowers kind of gets chopped down a bit. And so stomaching that and really learning to be proud but not obnoxious about that that dad was a bit different, being the first person to ski to the North and South Pole, who's someone who's raised in the bush or raised on a farm or, you know, just a, a working class family that's like who's that why why should i be interested in that there was a, a slight isolation that came being raised in rural australia being born in england but being raised in rural australia six onwards it did take learning to adapt and finding that acknowledgement and pride but without being arrogant being like oh my dad's the first person to do this and that took integration and now being 28 i really am so proud of dad more so than ever managing my own charity managing being an adult, having to manage your own accounts and, and life and expectations and family and friends, understanding what he's had on his shoulders for 40 plus years. I'm like, good job, dad. Like, my goodness, you've worked hard. And and I think I'm more proud of him now than I've ever have been, which is a beautiful feeling because I know what it, that weight feels like on my shoulders and really what it takes to, to create a legacy as impressive and as diverse as his. What's the first expedition that you remember? I mean, he, he, he's most famous for his polar expeditions, but he's also circumnavigated the globe and ridden a bicycle almost throughout India for three years. What's the, the first expedition that you recall, and what did you think about it? I mean, physically, I went on an expedition when I was seven to the Antarctic on a yacht, which was quite a trip. I remember vomiting in the vomit bucket and it had a smiley face at the bottom of it. So that's a nice, you know, tough early memory. But I think that there was always that 
that curiosity of of what it was like to do an expedition without a radio to pull together seven years worth of logistics in a warehouse and to sail down south with no EPIRB or safety net or sat you know in reach systems which we use now none of that existed you know they were truly in a traditional spirit which I think you know we're doing it safely these days but I, I'm almost a bit jealous of that pioneering edge that the team were a part of in the 70s and the 80s and even in the early 90s it felt different and it felt a little bit purer in a sense to to having to do sort of reports and sort of yes we're still alive and here's our image for the week of and I understand that's a a part of doing business in the modern age but there's a romanticism and a romantic element to especially his South Bowl journey and that's why he did it he was in the footsteps of Scott acknowledging explorers at the turn of last century that heroicism that I was always very curious of that as a kid and being raised off grid in the jungle I got to live that in a small way you know I would say to my mum bye I'm gonna go see our neighbours which were a mile down the road and we'd be gone for all day. She didn't know where we were. We weren't getting live tracked on our iPhone 14X Plus. We didn't have phones. We were out there learning to be resilient and realizing that if you get bitten by that snake or you fall off that cliff, you're dead. And having that as a young person, that responsibility for your own steps, for your own actions, I think is a big gap in educating children. And there's mechanisms like scouts and outdoor education and processes that I really want to see more on an international curriculum level to teach children that responsibility to be acknowledging of not only your steps from a safety standpoint, but your steps from an environmental standpoint and really connecting them to the source of their action. And I think that I really got the opportunity to do that as a child. But I remember early on, like five, six, seven, eight, being like, my goodness, like he really did give it a darn good go back in the day and I was very curious and in awe of that and now working with him as an adult I'm even more in awe of that like it's I don't think he quite realizes what he did and especially that South Pole journey wintering over going full hardcore status in the polar plateau with no radio I mean if one of them had rolled their ankle they would have been left like goodbye see ya we've got to keep going we've only got this much food you know give you a couple of sandwiches and carry on you know like there's no ifs or buts and that That edge, that collective mindset, I think is something we really need to be working on across industries, across all brackets of society, because we at a precipice right now with the climate reality that needs that collective spirit more so than ever and a wartime shift in how we address that. And so we're going to talk more about that a little later, but going back in the personal history a little bit, you had mentioned born in England. Born in London? Correct. And then at seven, you'd move to rural Australia, which would be a totally different world. But at the risk of being a little personal, how did that come about that your dad is in England and then your mother and you, as a seven-year-old boy, moved to rural Australia? My mum, Nikki Swan, and my father uh, split up, divorced when I think I was three or four. And I think mum just had a, was sick of London and the grey, and she was an avid gardener, horticulturist by training. She's like, yeah, that sounds great. Rural Australia, world's oldest rainforest. And then we go out there with my stepfather, Guion, and suddenly there's a sort of rickety old generator and no battery systems and, you know, nothing effectively, a shed that we have to convert and to live in 
and to adapt. And your mother has a dual passport, is that correct? Yes, my mum and my grandma is Australian, and she gave my mum through birthright Australian citizenship, okay. and and me, me and okay. me as well through birthright. So I do did have that Australian access point, but huge transition to go from London, Putney to suddenly being off-grid Australia and all these little kids running around, oh, bloody hell, you, know, you mate, you got a bit of a posh accent there. And I'm like, hello, yes, I, yeah. I like ketchup. And it's like, well, it's not bloody ketchup here. It's tomato sauce. And it's like, it was a very rough transition, especially where I'm from, you know, like shoes are not an option as a kid. Like if you've seen wearing shoes, you're weak, you know, like you've got to go barefoot to earn little people respect. And right. that goes up to you know, high school, but sub 12, like if you're wearing shoes, it's like, what the hell are you doing? And so that was a huge transition, but I'm very grateful for the opportunity to have been raised rurally and especially off grid because it connected me to, you know, not just turning on the tap and expecting it to be hot. You've got to get the gas to make it hot. You've got to get the energy to turn on the lights. And I think as a young kid to be plucked out of London, which is as comfy as it gets from a city standpoint, to suddenly really having to consider the basics and the essentials of what it takes to be a comfortable human was a hugely humbling thing. Right. And so my understanding is while your father and mother's lives took different directions, your father remained very good friends. Mm -hmm. It's just they were going in different directions, which Mm -hmm. I can understand, especially the livelihood of your father. But he actually rented an apartment or something close to you in Australia, is that correct, as you were growing up? For my final two years of high school, dad and rented an apartment, I was a weekly boarder, so I went to boarding school, and it was lovely to have his presence there for the last two years of, of high school, and his, uh, his quote around that is like, I'm glad I ironed a couple of school shirts, you know, he, at least he had a bit of the ironing phase, and was just really a critical part for him to see me develop, and you know, not easy to be halfway around the world or the full way around the world from London to the far north Queensland, Australia. And for him to be connected to that part of me growing up in situ was critical because we'd often go, I, I learned to ski when I was seven and, you know, went on a lot of trips with him and, and had a foreign association with dad that wasn't necessarily national in Australia. So to have that connection with him on country where I was raised was lovely. And this last three months, Four, three months ago, Dad was in Australia seeing our project in the rainforest, and that was the last, last first time in ten years he was back again where I was raised. So it's been really lovely to reconnect with him in that that two year space, and then recently he was out there once more, getting sweaty in the rainforest and uh, better understanding the madness that we pulled off in the last two years. In the place where you grew up in Australia, that was actually in the Daintree rainforest. Is that correct? Cool. So you developed a relationship with the Daintree. From a very early point in your life. Yep, the Daintree is definitely a core current to my soul and my learnings and my presence. You know, I spent a lot of time in the bush as a kid getting chased by lizards and driven up trees by these emus with horns on their heads called casseries, which are terrifying. They make a sort of guttural noise when they're nearby. It's like a... And like if you're a little kid and you hear that, you're like, oh no, there's a dinosaur around, literally. And they can chase you and disembowel you if you're not careful. And, you know, realizing that there's crocodiles in the border and you will be eaten if you swim in this area. But you're okay to swim in there. Just keep an eye out for the jellyfish and the stonefish and the cone shells, which can also all kill you. So being connected to the visceral reality of the rainforest was as a kid. But now growing up, returning post-COVID, I was living in California for eight years when COVID hit, returning to the rainforest and really understanding more of that biodiversity angle, not so much the visceral, like, here's what will kill you. 
and here's what's beautiful, but really understanding the significance from the tiny, tiny soil particles to the big mammals that, that call that place home, really understanding the significance of that place from a biodiversity standpoint, that's being old, older, 28, not ancient, 28 coming back, seeing and understanding really that biodiversity angle built on that visceral foundation as being a child. And now I, I understand that this place is like a holy grail of biodiversity globally, the world's oldest rainforest, 180 million year old faint rainforest, you know, uh, Amazon's late 50s, the Congo Basin's about 17. So this is a very ancient system. 50 million and 17 million Correct. respectively for the Amazon and the Congo Basin. Correct. And so we're dealing with a very ancient place. And again, I didn't really appreciate that as a child. I understood what leaves to touch to not be itchy, but I didn't understand the bigger macro connection of that forest and how globally significant it is so it's really nice to come back with a different lens working as a consultant doing a lot of things internationally and then to come back to where it began and understand it you know i, I can't remember the i think it's um t.s Eliot, you know to, to return home at the end of your adventures and to know it for the first time it really felt like that in coming back to that forest and really reconnecting with it in a different way on your website the climate force website there are references to indigenous people and th there's a great deal of respect and deference to the indigenous relationship with the land what is your interaction with indigenous people is is that even the correct term well traditional owners is the politically correct term in australia okay. And our traditional owners of the land and indigenous is definitely still correct. They don't like being called Aboriginals. I don't think that that's like a bit like Eskimo versus Inuit with the Canadians uh, and the Alaskans. So traditional owner is the most politically correct term uh, right now. So it will probably change. And our traditional owners on the land that we operate on are the Eastern Gugiyalanji people. That's translated to the, the people of the land and sea because we operate in that place. So the land and sea meet the Great Barrier Reef the wet tropics, where that land meets is Eastern Gugulanji land. And you also have the Gubadi clan, the Wujul Wujul clan, the Irikanji. There's a lot of different clans, but fundamentally the Eastern Gugulanji are the big mob. That's what, what, what we, you know, again, politically correct. That tribe has been on that land for about 30, 35,000 years. The indigenous Australians, traditional owners throughout Australia have called Australia home for definitely 60,000 years, but they're looking towards more 80,000 years. Australia has the world's oldest unchanged culture, which a lot of people don't know about. And as a cultural momentum, I think it's immensely undervalued. Working directly with elders there, being raised with traditional owner kids, not that they were them and us, we were just together growing up, you know? And I think that that is a really critical part of being raised in outbush, <laughs> is that there was no difference between us. We were all just being taught and raised together. And that's a beautiful thing. It wasn't like I was in a silo and then introduced. It was like we were raised together, which is a beautiful thing and having connection to the language. And yeah, that they, yeah, so much cultural beauty and cultural connection, like a big story that I love with the traditional owners of our land is that their ancestors fell in dream time. Back when it all began, their ancestors fell down and then the mountains grew over them. And you can see shapes in the mountains, the Mount Demi's one, and it looks like a human face. You can see it very clearly that this looks like a human face. And the stories in association to literally their ancestors are what the land was built on. That's beautiful. That's so connected, so wholly different to a colonial way of looking at land as a resource and as a place to subdivide and a place to settle and to extract their their 
inexchangeable association to the land is so profound and so deep and so important to respectfully acknowledge and respectfully yeah uplift and not tell them how to do anything but to just to collaborate and to offer but never to push it's a big thing i've learned especially this last two years you always offer don't expect them to say yes don't expect that anything just offer and have that open book and now we've got a lot of activity we're having medicine garden together on the property that we're working and so they can you know here are the trees that work here's what we've been eating here's our process to you know a black bean for example is a seed that is toxic in itself but if you put it in a sack leave it in a river for two days toxins flush out and you can eat it things like that are at scale are critical and then in, in a small way, I'd love to see, you know, the Web3 space and other digital momentums help uplift and to bring a different texture right. to that knowledge and to make it globally a little bit more relevant. And we want to keep the story personal, but can you define Web3 very briefly? Yeah, I think Web3 is the next generation of, of digital platforms. That could be NFTs, blockchain reporting, augmented reality, VR. Okay. I think that's just the next level of right. the internet. And right. fundamentally, what we're doing in our charity with the geotag trees and the cultural component, which I was just sharing, I think it's really important to be ready for that and to have your framework, your process, your data sets effectively being able to be plugged in to Web3 platforms. So you've mentioned several times about the land you're working mm-hmm. on. This the Climate Force is the NGO or the non-governmental organization. Charity in okay. Australia, yeah. It's called a charity. Okay. Yeah. How did that come about? And, and when did that come about? Which also gives you a little bit of opportunity to talk about the South Pole Energy Challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think Climate Force came about after the South Pole expedition that you went on. Yeah, correct. So in 2017, 18, after two years of preparation, creation of technologies that had never been tested before, we embarked, my father and I, Martin Barnett, Carlo Donahue, to ski to the South Pole, trying and innovating technologies that had never been tried before, in the hope that for very cold people, trying something that had never been done before in a place that really wants you dead, minus 40, below if we can be stupid enough to drag 20 kilos of solar panels and try stuff why can't we do it in india why can't we do it in laguna beach why can't we do it in new york and cape town and you know rio and 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 tananarivo or wherever you are wanting to go in the world we need to deploy cleaner technologies we need to create more circularity within our economy and we need to have a behavioral shift of thinking more about the landscapes as our ancestors and as a regenerative process rather than a resource to extract. And I say ancestors with respect because we were just talking about that. So, but maybe not ancestors is the best word, but to view it as a living force that needs to be respected because fundamentally we're not respecting biodiversity. We're not respecting a lot of stuff right now. So in a small way, asking to the South Pole, innovating, trialing, testing, and and having and requiring to have a lot of grit and human experience of frostbite, you know, having bits of flesh falling off the middle of your legs, you know, going a bit mad out there for sure. That story allowed me the opportunity to go to the World Economic Forum and and United Nations events and talk to a lot of corporates, not as just another young person who's, you know, talking, but someone who's walked the talk and suffered a little bit to have the right to talk because I think there's a lot of optimism and a lot of excitement, increasingly a lot of skepticism and cynicism around sustainability. But trialing something like that gave me the opportunity to talk about this stuff on it with a different level and a different gravitas. And that led me 
to founding Climate Force with my dear friends Daniel de Hotman, Rhodes Scholar, a medical doctor, and Holly Crawford, who are really instrumental. She's a mathematician working on Green Bond Index in Cambridge currently. Those two really were at the core of helping go through a year and a half process of setting up a charity in 2017. In 2019, we got our tax deductibility status. Okay, we're going we're gonna to pick up that. But back on the South Pole Energy Challenge, there are online daily audio reports that, that were submitted. And I listened through those, and I believe it was day 40. It was a 56-day journey from the edge of the uh, Antarctica landmass to the South Pole. It's 56 days. On day 40, you were the one who got assigned the daily report that was audioed out. And you seemed really distressed in on that day. Like I, I believe the words were, I'm questioning what I'm doing here. Do you remember that emotional state? What was that like? Yeah, I mean, it was horrible. Like, day, I think day between day 40 and day 45 really sucked. Like, my feet were, like, not waking up at night. Like, they were numb all the time, and they were going black. And, like, I'm, like, not smelling great. I've got rotting feet. I'm losing weight. And I feel like one of those monkeys with the symbols just, like, smashing this rhetoric. I'm like, why am I smashing this rhetoric? Why am I doing this? What is my purpose? and contribution and I think it really sucked but at the same time a bit like when I talk to kids these days and schools and I'm like guys not everyone has fresh water not everyone has a nice mattress to go back to not everyone's going to get anything at Christmas this year and I think for me it was like a really hardcore version of that not saying that children with those basic needs that is hardcore but for me coming from a place of having water and food growing up and a bed suddenly sleeping on a little foam thing and having frostbite and losing, you know, 15 plus kilos, which is what, 35 pounds of weight. Uh, Not a big fella to begin with. That was tough. But I was there by choice and I had an obligation to give it a damn good crack and to continue going and hopefully not lose any digits, but to carry on because so many people in the world are bound to circumstances that they don't have choice, you know, extreme poverty, war, whatever it is, family situations, disabilities. And that acknowledgement that I was there, but it was my choice to be there, kind of got me through that really rough patch. It kind of zoomed me out and really pushed push me to keep going and acknowledge those people who are bound to circumstances that they don't have control over. In, in your situation, it was near the South Pole. It was a 600-mile journey. At 300 miles, your father had to drop out because his hip was giving out. And you and Kyle, the photographer, and... and Martin. And, and Martin decided to go on. Did you think about um, 300 miles, that's enough? Or, or what was it that pushed you to go on alone without your father? Yeah, I mean, there was no option to abandon ship for sure. Because, you know, I've got to show myself above anyone else so I could do it. And it wasn't that bad up to that point. It got ugly on day 40 and we abandoned ship. Dad abandoned ship. Bowed down. More, more is a, a more respectful term. He bowed down you know, about day 30 or so. And that second half was harder because you start at about 400, 500 feet and we ended at 10,000. So you're going up, it's getting cold. sea level, so yeah, that's a massive yeah, increase. Yeah, so in you, you're, you're going up and up and up. And that as you get higher, the winds get rougher, the, the, the temperatures get rougher, everything gets rougher. And you're more tired because you've got less calories on you. you your bowels aren't feeling great because you've ate, eaten the same freeze-dried food for the last two months. So... I remember poignantly, and it was a very emotional moment, especially for dad, you know, he's like, my blood runs in you, you've got this. 
and that was a very poignant moment for sure as he flown off and I've been in silence like I'm a passionate scuba diver 600 or so dives dive master like when you're underwater it's very quiet when you're on the top of a mountain it's very quiet when you're in a cave it's very quiet when you're meditating with earphones and earmuffs and whatever you need to be in dead silence it's very quiet but when dad's plane flew off and it's just this like ringing quiet it was definitely intimidating and he flew off and just to be left with Carl and Martin very experienced hardcore dudes and I'm 24 whatever it was yeah 24 you know that that was tough and the screaming quiet of like all right well another month and a bit of skiing let's give it a good crack so um and an obligation outside of all of that to the sponsors and the people who are believing it with us and the kids who are watching and you know i had a responsibility to show to them that if you have the tenacity to say you're going to do something do your best to finish it and be smart with what you commit to before you commit to it (laughs) (laughs) so you did make it to the pole Mm -hmm. and your father flew in to meet you there do you remember that moment was it more triumph or was it relief oh thank goodness this is over what was the emotion then when you actually saw the the barber pole and the silver orb on top at the south pole i think the south pole unfortunately it was like five minutes of like hoorah and then it's like well now what barney you just spent two years of your life planning for this and now what and so it's actually incredibly anticlimactic and a bit of a challenge to be honest like i got a bit down in the dumps being like feeling a bit like what was the point and all that Mm -hmm. and now what am i doing and well i was going to say from that of the high down to the despair of sorts of now what but from that climate force emerged Mm -hmm. took a while though to figure out that you know taking two months of skiing and you get on a plane that takes you six hours you're like looking out there and you're like that was a bit like (laughs) and yet what's the point in anything you know that's uh, the next level of that was like What's the point in me showing up and giving it a good go? What's the point in being kind to your neighbors? What's the point in recycling? Or what's the point in any momentum that takes effort? You make the point. You bring the attitude that you bring into a table. You choose to be a grumpy kudger or you choose to give it a good go and to be light and to not be naive. No one likes naivety, but to be like, yeah, let's give it a crack. And someone's being disrespectful you know, you can maybe bring out the stick, but I'm all about the honey and all about the carrots these days. No one is responding to getting bitten by bees and being smashed around by sticks anymore. And I think that that started on that journey of really having to recode myself of being a bit down in the dumps post-expedition and exhausted. Like I slept like for a day and then had to go on a plane to the World Economic Forum, was in London on the tube post-expedition. Everyone's on their iPhones and ear pods and i don't think there were pods then but whatever listening to music all of the stuff and that was um that was overwhelming to come back to all of that especially the internet you know like i think that we're so used to these boxes following us around to not have internet for two months was overwhelming to come back to but then that took about six months to be like the internet is an absorbing thing to being like no that's a mechanism to change the world you choose how to use the internet you can watch cat videos or you can be a positive contender and have transparent darting and data and to give it a good crack. And that really led me into wanting to use climate force in a year and a half of setting that up to go more from that consulting to really deployment. And that's really what led us back to the jungle to create a model there for natural capital, nature-based solutions. 
We interrupt for a quick editor's note. Barney is about to discuss the first project of his climate force charity, the regeneration of a devastated section of the Daintree rainforest in northeastern Australia. But before they could plant trees, a cleanup of heroic proportions was required. The following conversation is not for the faint-hearted. And it was an absolute horrendous, you know, you think the South Pole's hard cleaning up 55 tonnes of rubbish, dealing with dead rats and sort of piles of everything that we had to clean out of that shed to even get it sanit- healthy to stand in, yet alone to work in. You know, it was a really gritty thing to undertake and literally having overgrown everything, no energy, all off grid, the ball pump screwed, like everything was wrong with that place and no one wanted to touch it. And so tell us, what, what is this place? And I, I think as a child, didn't you ride your bike by this place? Yeah, yeah, no, we, I remember being in, in on that farm in, in, you know, 2005 when it was an organic banana farm. And, and so this is rural Queensland, kind of the northwest... Top right-hand side of Australia. Yeah, of Australia. We're on the point there where the rainforest meets the reef. Right there's the Daintree River, uh, one of the most biodiverse mangrove ecosystems in the world. And the, and the Great Barrier Reef and, is just over the horizon and it's, in the water. And it's literally the farm closest to the mouth there. 372 acres of cleared land in the 80s for cattle. Then it turned into an organic banana farm. I remember being in that shed when it was a working operation. And then they left, the corporate funding went, started to rot, the meth heads ran in, then it just went down, 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 down. It turned into a druggy, yucky, horrible place. And then a cattle guy came in, the cattle started running through the shed, he, you know, gave it a good shot. Like he, he only was one guy, but didn't expect him to clean it all up. And yet we came in, started, went to the owner, uh, which was a whole thing to get to him. And then started uh, leasing the nursery, which they used to grow passion fruit on there at one point. Again, this hasn't been used for five years. And the and irrigation how big is this in terms of five thousand square foot packing shed, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and then next to that was a nursery uh, germination room, and then next to that was where they were growing pa- uh, yeah cucumber in a shaded area, which was all overgrown with metal wire. Um, and yeah, so where do you begin with that? Well, we need water, so you fix the generator, you fix the bore pump, and then we yeah slowly but surely just cleaning it all up putting fences up if anyone listening has ever built a barbed wire fence you know it's not easy and you know learning to do that stuff was horrendously difficult you know cutting your hand like doubting yourself like is this right is this wrong but grind by grind day by day you know back pain slowly creeping up on you not good in your late 20s and you start getting like sciatic pain that's keeping you in bed respecting my learning to respect my body whilst really pushing hard you know cleaning up tons and tons of rubbish people talk about a kilo of rubbish like cleaned up 55 tons of rubbish from this place like a ton is a lot of stuff and it's not like we just get the council ring up the council we have to bring that in a trailer to the refuge station, transfer station, which is 50 minutes away. So we're hauling a lot of trash. And yeah, going from a 65 kVA generator, now we've got a 39 kilowatt solar system, 40 panels, 330 watt each, lithium stacks, two regulators, an inverter, and we're 100% powered off the sun and, now. And so what does it look like now? There, there's rainforest around it. It's a somewhat cleared patch, but that's where you're, you're growing That's no, very cleared. It's very cleared, and it's okay. overgrown grass, just a bit shorter than this ceiling so about eight ten foot high grass so you're fighting against grass that is as vigorous as the reptiles correct and very invasive this stuff is like from papua new guinea it's called guinea grass it's like got a very funny name it's like maximus giganticus or something it's like actually ridiculous right. the latin name and so in the midst of that though that's what you're trying to to you're, you you are planting the old trees that were originally there yeah and we planted six thousand five hundred well sorry over 
set were total 6,500, but I'll explain the different. Planted 6,150 native trees in rows in the broad acreage component of the land. And we plan to plant around 360,000 in the next seven or so years. And then around the shed is where we planted about 350 fruit trees. So it's also the agroforestry model of being able to produce food for the future generations. There was no fruit trees on this farm, which is ludicrous. Like, I don't know why someone back 20 years ago didn't like, yeah, let's just get some mangosteens and durians and berlinia and high costing fruit that's also yummy for you know anyone who wants to eat it like i don't know why there wasn't more fruit in that on that farm but we've come in 350 fruit trees so many i could go through all the fruit but i'm not going to go into that and like all kinds of yummy stuff around the shed and then 148 species of native trees in the nursery we planted 38 so far out in the paddock and yeah all geotagged in perfect lines that run across you know about 400 meters of of long lines between the mangrove ecosystem riparian zone in the south and then in the north is that wet rainforest going up into the hills. So this is basically a corridor between wet rainforest and mangroves, which hit go into the river, which go into the reef. So from a biodiversity standpoint, wet rainforest, mangroves and reefs are the three most biodiverse places in the world. So and also places like, um, well, it's also wet rainforest, but up in, you know, Sonoma, Mendocino, like North Cal, that sort of wet rainforest as well. But fundamentally wet rainforest, mangroves. And coral reefs are the three gems that we really need to protect better and regenerate better. So uh, this corridor is between all three of those. And what's the time from the the time that you first negotiated with the landlord or or the the person who has title to the land to now? How, How long has that taken to get to this point? We started the formal lease on the nursery last March. And now we've got 28,000 trees. So we pushed hard very quickly and blown away anyone locally who's like, they doubted us, especially me, so much. It was great. And I love proving people wrong, not out of spiting them, but just to be like, yeah, young people are capable too. Like it's not just the old hardcore, you know, cattle and cane and banana farmers, fourth, fifth generation farmers who know what they're doing. If you lean on their knowledge and you play friendly with them and you get their experience and sometimes their tractors before we got a huge tractor ourselves, like we needed help from them. But innovation, that youthful ambition to be like no one else has cleaned up this shed let's do it like it's horrible i'm glad i didn't get leptospirosis or whales disease in the process like it was filthy and stinky and like horrendous in there literally cleaning up human filth rat filth like dead things like all kinds of stuff was in that shed i didn't see any old fourth generation farmers coming in and doing that we did that under a lease madness people said madness what are you doing then he's just going to kick you out and sell this yourself but now we've navigated a, a right to purchase that property until the end of next year end of 2023 and so no one else can buy that big lot 320 acres we've already purchased 50 acres which is where we're planting but again we put a solar system on a shed that we don't own any like classic business person would be like you're actually mad like what are you doing but to raise 1.6 million, which we've raised in the last 15 months, to do that, you've got to show that you've got commitment. And now we're raising 3 million philanthropically with the premise of that will make our R&D, our process, our nursery bulletproof. And then we're going to go to the likes of Macquarie or MFS or DBS or private equity VC. We're playing with both of those momentums and then that 25, 30, 40 mil mark to replicate that model that we've created here to go out to other properties locally with the intention of one day going to Indonesia, Sumatra, Brazil, other high-risk forests that really need an economic 
model to manage land better because there's a reason that people are smashing down forests. It's not for fun and games. It's hard work. They want to create money to feed their families and potentially buy an iPhone 14 just like everyone else wants an iPhone 14. It's nothing. We can't tell them not to get that, but we can give them a model to get it without destroying the last pockets of biodiversity around the world. So... When someone asks you, why on earth? I mean, you've already talked about people re- responded when they heard the idea the first time. They said, oh, this is madness. Oh, they're kids. They can't do anything. In a nutshell, what is your response to the doubters, the deniers, the pe- and the people who are in despair? The people who think, I can't do anything, so why even bother? I think it's important to to compartmentalize how you do it. In my mind, you have people who are in business, you have people who are students, and you have people who are just living their lives. And all of them require their own level of curation because it's not the same message. And especially for business, like I define myself as an evolutionary industrialist, like we need to evolve industry. That's the reality. Trillions of dollars need to go towards green economy. We're sitting at like one and a half, two trillion, the green agenda globally global momentum around without the derivatives market is late 70 trillion global momentum every year the global momentum is that hedge global economy in, in, okay. general global, okay. global economy okay. assets not liquid but assets is around late 70s global economy without the derivatives market and so we need to get it to 10 trillion and 20 trillion and 30 trillion and 40 trillion and eventually our global economy needs to be on a green agenda and that's requires good business opportunities and a big recalibration. And I've worked with big oil, I've worked with construction companies, I've worked with manufacturing companies and working with big data, big momentums globally that are the you know steel, concrete, all of these things are contributing to the reality that we're in as a species. But you gotta thank them <laughs> because we enjoy all of those things. We enjoy ibuprofen, we enjoy plastic wrapped nuts so they're not soggy and moldy when we get them we enjoy all of this stuff but so often especially young people are like you've killed our planet but they're quite happy to get in their diesel truck go and buy some plastic nuts and then go to bali to go on a yoga retreat i say that with a lot of cynicism but unfortunately that's where we're at a little bit with this siloing between industry and the sustainability agenda and I think it's really important to not silo and to approach big hitters, big industry, and be like, guys, thank you. We really enjoyed everything you created since World War II. We've done great, you know, but now it's time to evolve. It's time to diversify. There's nothing wrong with the door you're in, but maybe it's time to do some stuff a little bit different. And here's your model to do it. And if there is no model, let's be excited to design it. There's a lot of money to be made in this. We can shift the trillions and you can be on the forefront of doing that and if you're ahead of the game in the next five years you will be a leader in a different way it needs to be positioned with that carrot and that honey first and and if they're being disrespectful then you can get the stick out and throw a couple of bees at them but generally that's not where you start it needs to be the carrot and the honey and within that i think it's really important not to silo people and go straight into climate change or gender equality or diversity inclusion it needs to be more of like so water is pretty important right you like water you know water is critical 
resilience. What are we going to do about water resilience? Do we do desalination? Do we have more efficient water mechanisms? Do we suck water out of the humidity of the air? All of these are options, but I think water is pretty important that we're talking about that. We need to reinvent how we get that competitive advantage. And I really do believe the likes of ESG, net zero commitments, natural capital, and reinventing our materials is a big way to do that. And the next billion dollar thing will be like a mushroom tech, nanotech, wetware, lithium battery that doesn't need cobalt and lithium and copper. And you're like literally mining a landfill, throwing some mushrooms in it. And then it suddenly spits out this material with graphene or something else that you can create a battery that is organically sourced. That will be the next trillion dollar idea potentially. But to get there, we need to like push you know and push and push and lean on the symbol it's not symbols the the language of nature like biomimicry and really understanding how nature's been doing this for millions of years if we can really harness that i'm so optimistic we not and i think just reminding people of that that there's so much cool stuff happening we've fixed the hole in the ozone layer and the whales are coming back and we're more diverse and inclusive some might call it woke than ever before but now how do we make sure that our shared provisions and biodiversity don't come at the cost of productivity? So Barney, thank you so much um, for sharing your time and your insights and your experience with us. If someone wants to learn more, how can they find out more about Climate Force? What's the best way? Well, we've got our little website, theclimateforce.org and climateforce.com both end up at the same place. And I think outside of Climate Force, I think just learning what you can do locally, what volunteer opportunities you have to contribute to wildlife conservation, land remediation, go and visit your local waste station, understand where your waste is going, connect locally, and then educate yourself on globally what's happening. But that local connection really de-silos and demystifies the fact that it's not just the big billion dollar companies on a micro level, on a community level, we all have a part to play. And now it's time for Cold Hard Facts. The word Antarctica comes from the ancient Greeks, who knew about the Arctic and theorized that there must be an Antarctic, meaning in this case, a land opposite of the Arctic. While the ancient Greeks were correct, the first confirmed human sighting of the southernmost continent happened in 1820. 1820 AD, and it was probably a year later when the first human stepped onto the Antarctic landmass. That was most likely a crew from a ship hunting for seal pelts, thus beginning decades of seal and whale hunting along Antarctic shorelines. There was no real effort to explore the continent's interior until 1898 and the beginning of the heroic age of polar exploration. Thanks for listening, my friends, and we hope you'll join us next time on Undaunted with Robert Swan and NTT Data.